Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Immunotherapy, a Promising New Approach to Treating Cancer, and today is part two of a two-part series, and today's focus is on managing the side effects of immunotherapy. And I know for many of you that is a, an issue that you're very, very interested in learning more about, and today you're going to hear a lot about all the side effects that could happen. doesn't mean they're all going to happen to you, and also how to manage them. Um, and today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we and your interest in this topic, and I know there's a great deal, many of you have spoken to me about your interest in this topic, that we have so many of you on the call today. So we have over 561 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Algeria, Canada, Greece, and the United Kingdom. So you're really from all over the world, and it's really a credit to you that you're choosing to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of, this, this, of today's program and this two-part series as well. Now, we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician Genital Urinary Oncology Service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She's also Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Royal College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven is going to address how the side effects of immunotherapy differ from chemotherapy side effects, the review of potential side effects with guidelines for follow-up care, tips to manage fatigue, flu-like symptoms, fever, and diarrhea, if you should have those experiences, and talking with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Sloven. Thanks so much, Carolyn. It's always a pleasure to uh, contribute to your uh, outside uh, telephone people, for the lack of better terms, but thank you all for having me. Uh, we have a very, I think, very interactive group of uh, speakers today to inform you of uh, the issues that are ongoing in people who have immunotherapy. Now, let me start out that I am a medical oncologist. I'm an immunologist by training. And when we talk about immune therapy, we're talking really about any therapy that either tries to use the immune system, the body's own immune system, to fight cancer or to do something on the outside where we, use, we try to develop some sort of therapy that will engage the patient's immune system if they're, they're unable to use their own uh, system to do so. Uh, more recently, uh, there's been a lot of experience with the first FDA-approved treatment, which was an immune therapy. This probably led to the whole uh, burgeoning of the field, which was the approval of Cipelucil T or Provenge, which is a cellular product therapy that tries to enhance the production of a unique population of immune cells called dendritic cells. And these are important in uh, the interaction of uh, processing cancer 
molecules and causing the immune system to sort of take off and engage. As I said, this has been the first, it was approved in 2010, this was the first uh, burgeoning into this area. A second area which has had interesting results is a preparation called PROSVAC, which uh, was established at the NIH. The results of the phase three trials are currently pending, but this is another type of unique platform which engages uh, a viral vector or a part of a virus that acts as a co-stimulatory molecule to really uh, make the immune system uh, wake up. Many of you out there already know about what you, I believe, think is the only immune therapy out there, which is not the case, which are called the checkpoint inhibitors. They are a class of drugs that uh, are what we call antibodies. Now, we all make proteins in our body that act to protect us against foreign molecules, and we call those uh, antibodies as proteins, and they're against a variety of different things like viruses and bacteria. These checkpoint inhibitors are antibodies that are not made within the body. They are made as recombinant or commercial technology that work to lift the brake on the immune system that prevents the immune system from going awry at the first sign of anything that enters the body that may not be previously seen or the body has been exposed to. So many of you have heard the term of autoimmunity, which means that the body starts to react against itself. Well, the, the checkpoint molecules that are present work to prevent any sort of interaction that the body might have with itself. In the case of cancer, which we call an immune dysregulation, meaning that something goes on in the immune system that we can't really determine that is causing the disease. But what these checkpoint inhibitors do is lift off that break that's preventing the body from reacting against itself and telling the body to go ahead and engage, bring those T cells or the, the, the cells that usually engage with cancer cells online so that they can work uh, in an efficient manner. Now, it's quite interesting because we are seeing quite a number of checkpoint molecules or, excuse me, checkpoint molecules that are being identified to which new checkpoint inhibitors have been directed. Uh, many of them go by different names. One is called CTLA-4, uh, which is cytotoxic T lymphocyte 4 antigen, to which the checkpoint inhibitor ipilimumab or Yervoy was developed. There are several others known as program death ligand 1 to which a variety of other drugs have been veil, uh, made. Uh, some of them are, uh, go by a variety of different names, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab. They're all in the same family, and they all do the same thing, which is to inhibit the uh, body's own constraints immunologically and allow the immune system to go forward to, can to can kill the cancer. We have seen dramatic responses to a variety of different checkpoint inhibitors in kidney cancer, head and neck cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, melanoma, and bladder cancer. Prostate cancer has not been as robust, supposedly due to the lack of perhaps uh, significant mutational burdens, as we call them meaning it's not heavily mutated or changed the way some of these other cancers. And as I said, we've seen dramatic responses in these malignancies. And unfortunately, one checkpoint inhibitor does not fit all cancers, and one has to be very circumspect about which treatment would be reasonable for the respective cancer. 
Well, there's, there's been raging success, and uh, I would tell you to keep in mind that about oh, 25 to 50% of patients respond, some of whom have very durable or long-lasting responses and may even have had cure. But they are not lightweight drugs. One has to be very respectful. I know there are commercials out there that are promoting these drugs. And to be perfectly blunt with you, uh, I think they're doing the drug a disservice because one has to keep in mind that there are toxicities or side effects associated with these drugs. Among these uh, toxicities are what we call autoimmune diseases, meaning that the body, even though we are preventing it from we're lifting that break off it, it can engage into an autoimmune type of uh, problem, meaning that we're stimulating something in the body, which is itself, and that is causing a side effect. And among that, pro- those problems can be a very low thyroid level, what we call hypothyroidism, six, uh, extreme fatigue, something called hypophysitis, meaning that the pituitary gland in the brain is either inflamed, causing a reduction in certain hormonal levels and very bad fatigue, some patients have had raging diarrhea, uh, what we call colitis, a body rash, or even in some very rare cases, myasthenia gravis, which is uh, a neurologic uh, event. Now, the good news is that many of these side effects can be immediately addressed if the patient is, number one, made aware of them, and number two, if the patients are told of them. I mean, full disclosure is very important. So if somebody has diarrhea, I always tell patients if they're going to have diarrhea, diarrhea by definition is just watery stool, not loose bowel movements, which people unfortunately confuse with diarrhea. So if somebody's bowel habits go from once a day to suddenly three times a day, one really needs to know about that, and one should start some treatment. So the standards of care, as I said, this is all very treatable, and in 90% of the cases they're reversible, is steroids. And they can be oral or intravenous. There can be other drugs called uh, tumor necrosis factor inhibitors or mycophenolite. They're all immune modulators that can help the body control these symptoms, and they don't have to be on forever, but they can be tapered off gradually, and the body goes back to normal. Now, these therapies are very different than chemotherapy. Chemotherapies are cytotoxic agents that affect the blood counts. They can uh, cause increasing fatigue, weight loss, poor uh, oral intake, but the mechanism of action is very different because the chemotherapy gets in there as what we call alkylators. They get in to break the DNA strands, or what we call cross-strand breakage, so that the DNA, the cancer, can't grow. These drugs work differently. They are strictly adherent to the immune system and work by lifting that break off to let the immune system run rampant. Overall, everybody does very well for the most part. The skin changes that often occur, including rash, uh, can be easily adjusted with the use of steroids. Dry skin could be due to be treated with emollients. Uh, there's a lot of things that Dr. Couture will address. Flu-like symptoms, fatigue, again, steroids seem to work very well. But again, one has to be very much aware of this going into the treatment so that you know to respond at the slightest change. Overall, these checkpoint inhibitors and immune therapy in general, including other uh, recent drugs like T and Prostac for prostate cancer, have been revolutionary. It, alter, it offers a new means by which patients can be treated in lieu of standard agents, but to be perfectly honest, they are not 100% in disease control for some patients. 
and not every patient is a candidate for these treatments. So one should always discuss this with your doctor. Be aware to read these side effect profiles very seriously. Just don't get a card and put it in your back pocket. Keep in mind, too, that we do have treatments for any of the side effects. And for the most part, early identification of these side effects and immediate contact with your doctor or your healthcare team is imperative to success with these treatments. So I'm going to thank you, Carolyn, for your attention and uh, get it back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. As always, this was outstanding. And really, we covered a lot of very important um, points here in terms of managing the side effects and just setting the whole context for the program today. So thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Mario Lacatour. Dr. Lacatour is Director, Oncodermatology Program, Associate Attending Physician, Department of Dermatology, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center, Associate Professor of Dermatology, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Lacatour is going to address understanding your skin's reaction to immunotherapy, managing skin, ca- skin changes, including rash and dry skin, care of your hair and nails, and sun sif- safety tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Lacatour. Thanks, Carolyn, and thanks to everyone today listening on the call. I will be speaking today about other side effects that may occur with these immunotherapies that Dr. Slovin has so carefully described. It turns out that these immunotherapies unleash a person's immune system, and fortunately, in many people, this unrestricted immune system will attack cancer cells, but it will also attack other normal cells in the body. Importantly, it will attack cells of the skin and of almost any other organ system, including the gastrointestinal system in organs such as the intestines, the hepatic system, so the liver may be affected, the lungs, certain glands in the body, as well as the kidneys. In terms of skin, it tends to be one of the first organs to be affected within the first five weeks. The side effects that most frequently affect the skin include a rash that looks like measles and may affect all parts of the body. This rash usually affects people in about 40% of cases, so one out of three people will be affected by this rash. This rash may be itchy in the majority of people, and other than being cosmetically unsightly in most people, it really is not a dangerous type of rash. It is usually treated by oncologists with a combination of creams or ointments containing immunosuppressive medications to the skin, and in some cases also with oral medications that suppress that immune system that is so active so that it does not continue to attack other parts of the body, in this case the skin. Once this uh, rash is usually treated by your oncologist, the rash will usually resolve and people will be allowed to receive additional courses of the immunotherapies with no significant danger to to their bodies or to their overall health. Another important side effect that can affect the skin in people receiving immunotherapies is this very bothersome itch. For some reason that we do not fully understand, itching can be one of the most distressing side effects in people receiving immunotherapies, affecting about 20 to 30% or one out of five to one out of three people. 
It tends to appear after two to three months of treatment initiation, and it usually affects the legs and the back. It is worse at night, and interestingly, it is not usually accompanied by a rash. It is just an itching that appears to come from the inside. People may sometimes lose sleep over it, but thankfully, there are both creams and oral medications, such as antihistamines, such as over-the-counter Benadryl or cetirizine, that can be used to mitigate this itch. And finally, another of the most uh, common types of side effects that occur in the skin are the depigmentation of skin. And what happens here is that the immune system ends up attacking those cells in your skin that give your skin its normal color. So what people, people are left with is these areas of their skin which have no color and become very, very white, uh, leading to this spotted appearance, especially in areas that are exposed to other people, such as the hands, the face, and the legs. Now, all of these side effects, although they affect probably between uh, between one-third to half of those people that receive these drugs have, believe it or not, a positive side to them. It turns out, and studies have shown, that people that have these dermatologic side effects, and when they have multiple of these side effects, they tend to have a better response in terms of their cancer. So it appears that a greater activation of the immune system does not only lead to greater side effects, but also leads to greater anti-cancer effects. So this is why it is very important for anyone who experiences this and any other side effect to inform their oncologist and their team so that the side effects can be treated effectively and people can receive more of their treatments as they are precisely those people that are most likely to benefit from their treatment. Now, another topic that I would like to uh, discuss today is the issue of overall skin care during treatment. And this uh, type of treatment, the immunotherapies, uh, as well as any other type of chemotherapy or uh, conventional chemotherapy or the so-called targeted therapies, can lead to very dry skin. It is important if one is experiencing this, especially during this time of year when the uh, humidity is very low, to use fragrance-free soaps and detergents, and to use a fragrance-free moisturizer at least twice a day, especially after bathing or showering. Also, it is recommended to use fragrance-free soaps during that shower and to minimize the amount of perfumes and scented fragrances you apply onto your skin. The nails can also become somewhat brittle uh, when receiving these therapies, especially with the conventional, what we call chemotherapies, uh, not uh, with immunotherapies, as nails are usually not affected by immunotherapies. And finally, of course, even immunotherapies can lead to some degree of hair loss. So it is important to be prepared as, although these drugs appear to be more specific than conventional chemotherapies, they still can affect, as was mentioned before, almost every other part of your body. And in those areas uh, of the world that are sunny or have a lot of uh, uh, sunny days throughout the year, it is important to know that any 
something that inflames the skin or that irritates or affects the skin in a negative way will just be maximized or will be greater with the use of immunotherapies. So if someone experiences a sunburn with immunotherapies, it's going to be more painful and likely to be more severe if that person is receiving immunotherapies than if they are not. So it's important to use a sun protective uh, type of sunscreen that has a broad type of protection. In other words, that protects against those ultraviolet rays, both A and B, that can cause not only skin cancers, but also painful burns on the skin. It is important to know that the ultraviolet radiation coming from the sun can penetrate through window glass or glass in your cars or the uh, glass in your home. So you can get painful sunburns even, even if you are inside, but the sun is reaching you through that, those windows. So take it as a whole, dermatologic side effects, including the rash, the depigmentation or, or skin color loss, as well as itching, are very common in people receiving immunotherapies. Importantly, the appearance of these side effects has a beneficial uh, association with increased anti-cancer activity of the immunotherapies. So it is important that they are treated early and effectively so that everyone can get the maximum benefit from their treatment. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Lacrature. That was really outstanding. And again, wonderful information for everybody to have about the impact, the potential uh, impact of immunotherapy on skin and, and how to manage it. Very important tips and also the sun safety tips, really important. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is a dietitian. She is supervisor of clinical nutrition at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Bearden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips during immunotherapy. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Ms. Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of immunotherapy. Nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance um, during treatment, it provides you not only the energy to do, to do things you enjoy, but it also gives you the nutrients to help your body function optimally. A plant-based diet is most ideal for prevention, during treatment, and during survivorship. A plant-based diet translates into having about two-thirds of your plate covered in a whole grain, the least processed, the better, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and healthy plant-based fats. Plant-based foods provide us antioxidants, phytochemicals, and fiber, which are important in um, helping our body function optimally. The other third of your, <clears throat> of your plate should come from a lean protein, such as wild-caught fish, poultry, beans, um, variety of beans, all beans um, have benefit. Protein is the building block for healing. So if you're recovering from a treatment or, you know, prior to the immunotherapy or um, even with the immunotherapy, this helps with building cells, tissue, muscle. Um, so protein is very important. There might be a need for you to take a supplement during your treatment. 
based on your unique circumstances. I encourage all of you to talk with your healthcare team about the supplement that's appropriate for you. Sometimes supplements are um, highly fortified and you just want to make sure yours, um, your needs are being met with the appropriate supplement. Now, there might be times during your treatment you have to modify your diet due to side effects. We've heard a few of them today already. Um, in this situation, you want to consult with your healthcare team, um, possibly reach out with your, to your dietitian on the team to help meet your unique needs and help you know how to modify your diet with whatever challenges you're facing. The sooner, the better. Dehydration is important, and it can actually increase nausea and fatigue. It can actually make you feel dizzy, cause dry skin. So fluids are anything that are liquid at room temperature, such as water, juice, ice cream turns to liquid at room temperature, jello, sports drinks. In general, most people need between 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid per day. Again, if you're experiencing any side effects, keeping a daily record of your intake can be very helpful for your team in helping identify what foods might be triggering your symptoms. A dietitian can provide you with the calories, protein, and fluid needs for your unique needs, so reaching out to her or him during your treatment can be very helpful in having the appropriate information to have you feel confident that you're doing all that you can to tolerate your treatment the best. Um, thanks for allowing me to be part of this presentation. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was excellent and wonderful tips. And, you know, your nutrition and hydration is really very important in, in all of your life and particularly when you're undergoing uh, treatment and immunotherapy. So thank you, Diana, for giving those tips to everybody. And um, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Caroline Edlin. Ms. Edlin is an oncology social worker, and she is, an on, she is our online support group program director at Cancer Care. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Edlin, and she will be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. And I do just want to say that at the current time, we have 120 online support groups for all different types of needs that you may have. And I'm going to turn this over to Ms. Edlin, and she will say more about all of our services. Ms. Edlin? Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional supportive services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online support groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. 
sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this means for you and for your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help. So please do contact us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Uh, thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Evelyn. That was really terrific. And thank you for also letting everyone know about all the services they can access from Cancer Care. Um, and, um, and now we have time for questions, and we have a lot of time for questions. I want to thank our speakers for that, actually. And so this is terrific. And so um, I'm going to ask Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board. And also, if we could um, just, if Ayala, if you would explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Some of you already have queued up, but I know some of you don't know how to queue up, so Ayala is going to explain to you how to do that, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get to your question, I will, at the end of the call, give you, give you resources of how to get your questions answered. So please stay tuned. Stay on here. Okay. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, Please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit web qu questions by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is now open. Hi. Can or do the medications and changes in diet that relieve reactions to immunotherapy counteract the positive effects of immunotherapy? And do these medications and supplements that relieve the side effects of immunotherapy have further side effects that require more use of medications? That's an interesting question. Um, actually, thank you, Emil, um, and thank you for being on the call. And I'm going to ask Dr. Slovin if you would start with that question. It's a, uh... Well, I would say that most dietary, thank you for your question, most dietary supplements really don't interfere with any of the uh, the treatments per se. Where we get into trouble very often is people taking unregulated amounts of uh, vitamins or like vitamin C or uh, other supplements that could uh as they're digested or passed through the liver, could cause some elevation of liver function tests, thereby not making the liver a very good host to process the, the drugs that you are receiving. So to answer your question, anything that you wish to take for any sort of fortification, meaning vitamins, herbal supplements, not food, but uh, the latter, are ones that should be uh, evaluated in discussion with your physician. Regarding the uh, other part of your question, do we need medications to circumvent? The answer is usually not, just cessation or discontinuation of these medications, which is what I call them, or versus the supplements, uh, will usually result in resolution of any abnormalities that are seen on lab tests or anything that the patient may be feeling. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a question from one of our online participants, um, actually uh, for Dr. Lacatour. Um, 
Um, can immunotherapy increase the risk of melanoma? Dr. Alekator, if you could address this question in a general way, of course. Thank you, Carolyn. The question is, can immunotherapy increase the risk of melanoma? So far, there is no evidence to show that immunotherapies can increase the risk of melanoma or um, most malignancies affecting the skin. Potentially, the loss of skin color that is induced when the immunotherapies cause the depigmentation of the skin could uh, hypothetically increase a person's risk for a skin cancer or melanoma, but that would take many years or even decades uh, for that to occur, and I do not envision that as being really uh, a, a, a high risk uh, by any means. So the answer would be no. Excellent. Thank you. And um, our next uh, question, um, Ayala. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. I've been waiting 10 years to hear about immune therapy. Um, I, I have two questions. My first question is patients who I am a nurse also, patients who've had hepatitis C, um, is this the same type with immune therapy that they've had? Uh, sounds like the same side effects. And number two, what is the best therapy for Dr. Slovin for prostate cancer that's non-metastasized that um, why can't they take immune therapy versus a targeted radiation therapy treatment if they're non-metastasized? Thank you. Well, Stephanie, thank you for the question. I'm going to ask Dr. Sullivan to address your question, particularly the second one, of course, in a general way, just because not having access to all the information, but she could just at least address the question in a general way, and then we recommend yes. you go back to treating healthcare team, of course. Yes, uh, thank you for your question. So patients who have uh, active hepatitis C and are ongoing treatment are no longer excluded. On the clinical trials, you could not have had any history of hepatitis B or C, any hypothyroidism, mainly because we didn't want to exacerbate any pre-existing conditions. But it has been found uh, that giving these treatments with these pre-existing conditions has been safe, particularly if this is being evaluated. Looking at immune therapy for prostate cancer, the, the standard of care that exists for patients who have failed hormones and have minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic disease, whether you have disease in bone or not, has been using Cipolusol T or Provenge. Using targeted radiation remain, it remains a I guess it really depends on what the person has. So if somebody's already been treated for prostate cancer and has a metastatic focus that's symptomatic, by all means, radiation can be given. There is radium-223, which is a radiopharmaceutical that is used, again, for symptomatic disease in bone. But as a rule, we would not use targeted radiation unless somebody was newly diagnosed and we're using that to control the patient's prostate cancer or if somebody has a new lesion in bone that requires some level of pain palliation. I, I hope I'm, I'm answering your question, but that's how I perceived what you were asking. Excellent. I hope that's addressing it. I think so. Excellent. Um, thank you. And um, we also have a question um, from one of our online participants, and I think this question would go to, yes, to Dr. Slovin. Um, and the question is, if you experience a few loose stools occasionally, is it acceptable to use something like Imodium or Pepto-Bismol? 
absolutely correct. You could. Not a problem at all. But if you are on a checkpoint inhibitor and you are having something that is new in terms of your bowel habits, then you need to immediately discuss this with your doctor before instituting any medications. And if it's occasional, do you still let your doctor know even with that symptom as well? I, I would, it depends on the cause. I mean, some people have had prior radiation, may have more frequent bowel movements. Uh, some people have dietary uh, uh, incompetence when it comes to dairy products. I always think it's important to let doctors know what your baseline is. I always record that somebody has an occasional loose stool or diarrhea, but usually it's due, it's due to dietary issues with uh, either dietary indiscretion or dairy products or, or some extra stool softeners that they've been taking out of the ordinary. So it's always I always err on the side of telling people, please just make mention of it so the doctor knows what's normal for you. Excellent. Thank you so much. And our next telephone question, Ayala. Our next question comes from Edmund E. Your line is uh, open. Yes, um, it's for Dr. Sloven. Um, I'm a 17-year survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I was diagnosed with prostate cancer about four years ago. been doing active surveillance. And I'm wondering if immunotherapy can be used for people with prostate cancer who have another a previous cancer. The answer is if your it's an excellent question. If your cancer is in remission, the answer is yes, you can. Some drugs that are immune modulatory, as we call them, maybe causing disarray in the immune system, usually is. Uh, uh, evaluated very carefully, making sure that patients don't have any prior exposure to TB or any reactivation of any sort of uh, prior infections. But the answer is yes, if you've been in remission. Okay, excellent. Um, and our next question comes from one of our online participants um, and for Dr. Sloven. Um, can a patient get these autoimmune issues associated with these checkpoint inhibitors happening one year after treatment, implying that it's excellent. ended. Yeah, ex excellent question. There has been documentation of, of the development of late autoimmune effects. Uh, I had a patient who had treatment-associated side effects with ipilimumab or Yervoy for prostate cancer on clinical trial many years ago. These were corrected with the use of steroids and immune modulators. His sugars were under great control, and then about one to two years after he finished, probably around 15 months later, he developed insulin-requiring diabetes. So the answer is yes, you can have uh, development of late-onset uh, autoimmune events. Excellent. Thank you. And um, a question, another general question for one of our online participants, um, are vaccines immuno-oncology? Immunotherapy, or they could be considered part of it, Dr. Stolman? The answer is yes, and we're talking about vaccines that are directed to particular molecules that are present on the cancer cells. There's a wide variety of them under a clinical investigation, but anything that is either introduced to your body that can stimulate the immune system or has already been prepared outside the body and reintroduced into the body's own immune system are deemed immunotherapy. Anything that, that changes or activates your immune system is immune therapy, irrespective of the preparation that's used. And um, I have a question, uh, another question for you, Dr. Slovin. Um, I'm running a monopoly today. Sorry, <laughs> Dr. Lacouture. <laughs> um, so, um, and please, everyone else, chime in if you want to add to it. I'm sorry. I'm chime in, that. please. So, 
So on this one, I'll, I'll say, so I'm on an immunotherapy drug and recently experienced fever, chills, and vomiting over a five-hour period. I reported to my doctor who is checking for infection. What else could be going on there? Is it something seen in patients? How concerning is this? And again, Dr. Sloven and other speakers as well, this is a general question, and so indeed, I mean, it's a, it's a personal question, but it, of course, if you could address it in a general way so our participant can ask their physician, of course, these questions in a little more detail. There are known side effects that can occur during the active infusion or the delivery of the immune therapy by intravenous or by vein, and that can be fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, and even low blood pressure. Uh, can I tell you that it is definitely specific to what you have? The answer is the first order of the day if you've been receiving the treatment and you've never had any of these side effects despite months of treatment and you suddenly experience it. The answer is you always want to err on the side of uh, making sure that the person did not have an infection as a result of having the intravenous or the patient doesn't have flu since it's flu season and you always want to draw blood cultures, check blood work, temperature, etc. And sometimes people need empiric treatment with antibiotics. So it isn't what it always appears to be. I never assume that something is as banal as an infusion reaction. You always want to look at the whole person and be prepared for any other intercurrent events that could potentially happen. Okay, excellent. Um, and another question, again, uh, for Dr. Slovin. Um, oh, dear Lord. One of our participants. <laughs> um, how are these therapies administered, um, these various um, immunotherapies? All of the, uh, well, the checkpoint inhibitors are administered intravenously as an infusion, meaning it just drips into the vein. The uh, cipolucyl T is, again, given by vein, but it's your own cells that have been incubated with a protein and expanded in culture and given back to you as three separate infusions, each one given two weeks apart. We don't have very many oral drugs in this regard, uh, but at the present time, they are all intravenous. The steroids, however, like prednisone that can be used for any of these autoimmune events can be given orally as well as intravenously, depending on the dose. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a question from one of our telephone participants. Our next question comes from Joanne S. Your line is now open. If your phone is on mute, please unmute it. All right, well, we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, this one um, is to Dr. Um, for Dr. Lacatour. Um, so um, I had a poor response to um, epilumumab for my melanoma. Is this indicative of all immunotherapy treatments, or would others give me a different response? If you could address this, Dr. Lacatour, in a general way. Yes, Caroline. As always, uh, everyone's body is different, and uh, melanoma is one of the uh, many types of cancer in which genes play a major role as to how uh, it will respond to certain kinds of uh, therapy. Uh, ipilimumab was the first uh, immunotherapy that was approved in, uh, of uh, the ones that we have discussed, the checkpoint inhibitors, in 2011, and uh, it uh, appears that the newer types of immunotherapy, such as pembrolizumab 
or nivolumab, or even the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab may even be more effective than when ipilimumab was used by itself. So uh, there is still uh, an opportunity to use other immunotherapies and the efficacy may be higher. Excellent, thank you. Um, and we have um, another question um, for Dr. Slovin, um, and this is a question that um, um, it's, will my, will my symptoms of immunotherapy treatment be magnified if my immune system is already compromised by a pre-existing condition? Would I even be eligible to try this treatment? And this actually question actually came up in part one as well, and it's an important question in terms of um, someone having pre-existing autoimmune disease, or um, Dr. Slovin, if you would uh, address this one. The answer is usually there is no usual exacerbation uh, from what I have seen and heard and, and read about, so I think one could go forward. I think there there's a misconception here that uh, that because you have cancer, there is some sort of dysregulation or disarray of your immune system. Uh, there is because you have cancer, but you are still immunologically competent to fight infectious disease as well as uh, other conditions in your body, viruses, et cetera. You know, you get an infection, you're going to be fine with a little bit of antibiotics. So I don't use the premise that because somebody has cancer, they're immunologically compromised. We, we say that at a level, at the, the basic science level, but that does not mean that in any way your overall clinical state or status is going to be worsened by these treatments. It's a completely different compartment of the immune system that we are addressing. I always tell people that they're perfectly healthy, their bodies are well enough to fight uh, other infections and the like. It's just a matter of using a different part of the immune system to strengthen it so that it can fight cancer, for which these checkpoint inhibitors uh, are directed. And we have a question for Dr. Lacatur um, from, um, from one of our online participants. <clears throat> I use a lotion for my dry skin <clears throat> and it burns terribly. Is there a good lotion brand I can use to help my dry skin? Uh, yes. So if if the if the lotion that you're applying is burning, it likely indicates that your the barrier of your skin is disrupted, and uh, you need to restore that barrier, ideally with not a lotion which is easier to spread, but a heavier type of moisturizer such as a cream or an ointment. Uh, these creams or ointments should contain the least amount of chemicals or perfumes, uh, and you can see in the label that it says fragrance-free. There are a number of uh, uh, different brands that you can obtain in a drugstore, but uh, certain ones that contain uh, either oatmeal are usually free, uh, fragrances or perfumes, or uh, other name brands or things as simple as uh, Vaseline. Um, also, if your skin is burning every time you apply something, it, it probably should also warrant an evaluation by a skin specialist as there may be either an underlying skin condition such as eczema or you may have an allergy to one of the ingredients in these lotions that would require a special test in which uh, we could identify what you are specifically allergic to and therefore avoiding that uh, molecule and uh, allowing you to apply lotions or moisturizers and keep you free of the dryness as well as of that, uh, that symptom of burning every time you apply something. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. And 
I have a question for Ms. Bearden as well from one of our online participants. And if you could define this term, is the BRAT, so you could define the B-R-A-T diet, is the BRAT diet recommended when having loose stools? How long should one stay on that bland diet before not, not getting enough nutrition? So if you could just explain what that is. And I'll also have Dr. Slovin weigh in on this as well, but if you would start with this as well, um, Ms. Bearden. Sure. And um, so the BRAT diet is kind of an, <clears throat> a diet that's been going on for many years. It stands for bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast. And um, the idea behind the diet is that um, it, it's a bland diet. It doesn't have a high, high fiber. It, um, excuse me, high insoluble fiber. And it tends to do well for patients who are having GI distress. Now, like we heard earlier, um, that you need to understand the reason for your GI upset. And so talking with the doctor is important. Um, obviously, um, taking an evaluation of what you're consuming is important because oftentimes um, spicy foods or high fibery foods or something new that we've added to the diet may be reacting to us um, in an unfavorable way. And so that would be important to examine. But um, the BRAT diet itself is is really designed to be kind of a short-term diet for someone. I always think about if you're cutting over the flu or, you know, you've had um, something that's been upsetting gastritis or something like that, then short-term, but it's not considered to be a life-term diet or a long-term diet. Um, but talking with your team is the best approach to understanding the source of what's happening and why it's happening. Excellent. I call it the tea and toast diet. So I guess when we were all kids, we had it at some point in our lives. So I would not be alarmed in any way about it. It's temporary. Once you get over the symptoms, you're back to a normal hot dog and hamburger. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, okay. and anything more to say about that? or just is that? I mean, I'm not promoting it, by the way. I'm just <laughs> right. I, I, and, and they should let their healthcare team know about the um, Absolutely. If there's anything that's out of the ordinary, I mean, people are, you know, I hear people having a lot of dietary indiscretion. They go to a restaurant, they have something they shouldn't have had. Uh, maybe somebody else in the in the home has the same thing, or they have grandchildren with little uh, uh, diarrhea uh, spasms that occur periodically, you know, they're in schools, et cetera, and then everybody gets so panicked that it's their drug. 95% of the time, it's not the drug, and it's everything around them. We actually live in a very dirty world, in case nobody realized it. <laughs> so we depend on our... Um, so so we do, and to some extent, that's an interesting point, and so we depend on our systems to kind of help us, is that correct, or our healthcare team to help us? Absolutely. You really want to know. People need to be reassured whether this is something that is drug-related or it's something in the environment. I can't tell you the number of phone calls I get about this, and the first thing I ask is they have unusual dairy products. And then every time somebody will come out and say, well, I went to a restaurant and I had uh, shellfish or I had a sauce I've never had before. And I actually had a patient come in the other day and tell me that he thought that he had a meat allergy. I said, how is that possible? He says, well, when he eats meat, any kind of meat, six hours later, he has diarrhea. Now, he's never had that a day in his life. So it's either something that uh, I'm not so sure that for him it's really diarrhea, because, again, we discussed the definition of diarrhea, but you get these sort of quirky th episodes that happen, and it gets to be you know, unusual in terms of what it could be. 
So it's really important to actually, I think, that just to, for everyone on the call today to re- recognize how important it is to bring your symptoms to your healthcare team, and they can help to assess really, um, you know, uh, I'll keep track of it with you because obviously, for me- many of for many people, of course, any of us, any change. We're kind of familiar with our bodies as they are to some extent over time. And many of the people on the call today are adults and they've been around their bodies for a long time and notice changes. And um, if they're in the midst of treatment and immunotherapy, uh, it is natural for them to bring these concerns to their treating healthcare team. Absolutely right. But I, I mean, I do think, Carolyn, that uh, people do should know their body, and but they should feel free to call the doctor. And I, I always tell them it is better to call our office multiple times and uh, discuss it with us before ignoring it and saying, oh, it's probably nothing. And, again, people get very anxious when they're on a therapy, and, and of course, it's reasonable to be anxious about these things. It's very appropriate. I, I do want to just follow up on, the, and I'm going to ask Ms. Baird about this, but all of you to some extent. I, I guess people do eat in a certain way, but every once in a while people do perhaps veer from something. There's some type of a, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to describe it as, Ms. Baird, but sometimes people do end up eating something that perhaps isn't their norm of eating, and we don't really quite mm-hmm. know why we eat that, but I'm sure everyone probably on the call does that with once in a while. So the question is... Because we're human. And we are human. We're human. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in respect for our humanity, so Ms. Beard, do you want to say something about that? That every once in a while, people seem to do this, and they and we all, yeah. and everyone on this call, not just the, the participants, but the speakers too. Everyone does. We're all human, and that's a very good point. So, by our very human nature, we sometimes. What is it, Diana? Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> so it's I'm called withholding kind of... the chocolate and the candy, and then going on a cruise and realizing that there's other food other than your diet. Yeah, um, and then also when someone's diagnosed with cancer, and I mean, they always, a lot of times, um, they want they want everything they can, all the information, obviously, to you know, move forward and do what they can to tolerate their treatment the best, to reduce any possibility of their recurrence of cancer, and so through friends and family and all sorts of websites and support, they may try experimenting with new foods and. Um, you know, going from a diet where you don't eat hardly any fiber to a diet that you're eating, you know, still cut oats and all kinds of bran and, you know, bringing in raw veggies and you start having GI distress and gas and bloating, that can be a result of the, the significant um, introduction of all the fiber. Um, it, it's people who, you know, um, may think that, oh, I need to tar- start taking um, certain supplements or adding certain spices and herbs and things like that to their food because they're anti-inflammatory or they've been shown to reduce risk of disease, um, just may have a reaction because of the volume they've consumed or the fact that they've not consumed it and they're doing a whole bunch of different things at one time. So they oftentimes make a lot of changes at once. And it's just a shock to the system. And, and like we were just saying, um, you know, they, they go out and um, try try new restaurants or they go on vacation and um, things are prepared differently and it's just not your normal way of eating. So you can just have um, some symptoms related to that. Excellent. And um, we do have um, a question actually for Dr. Lacatour in terms of the sun safety tips. If you and um, the uh, participants are asking a bit more about things you would recommend in terms of sun safety tips. And um, I think the person has heard you present before and they would like you to go over all those wonderful tips that you've given in the past about things to do, do or clothing and those kinds of things that really help with sun safety tips. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, in addition to using sunscreen, uh, which, as I mentioned before, has to have a sun protection factor of at least uh, 30, uh, it's important uh, that it is applied every two hours or every hour if swimming or sweating. Uh, the amount of sunscreen that it takes to cover your entire body is the size of a golf ball or one ounce or the amount that would uh, fill in a small uh, cup of uh, espresso coffee or a shot glass. Uh, that should be applied every two hours. Um, also, in addition to this, uh, it's important to wear uh, sun protective or uh, dark clothing, especially uh, during the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. to minimize the damaging effects of UV radiation. Uh, there are many brands now that carry products or, or clothing that have sun protection in, in, embedded within the fabric, uh, and these uh, can be obtained especially at uh, sports stores or fishing stores or any outdoor type of uh, stores. They also uh, provide or they also offer uh, broad-brimmed hats, so it's important to remember that a baseball cap will not provide enough sun protection for your ears and the back part of your neck, or even the sides of your face and your chest. So a broad-brimmed hat is key. And uh, also uh, be very cautious between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. For those of you that have young children, there are also detergents that you can put in the wash in your clothes that will make any of your children's clothes or any of your clothes sun-protected. Uh, one of them is called RIT uh, SunGuard, and you can obtain this either online or at certain drugstores. And then finally, uh, there are many different brands of sunscreen that make people very confused uh, and uh, which lead to many people not getting the appropriate uh, uh, kind or the most effective kind of sunscreen. So the, to make it simple, uh, the important thing is to look in the back of the label and see that it is a broad-spectrum sunscreen that has a sun protection factor of at least 30. And keep in mind that if the bottle that you get has lasted for a year or more, it's probably uh, not as effective and you need to replace it. And also, if you have a bottle that's a year or older, it probably means that you have not been applying enough. So you need to apply uh, the amount of one ounce every two hours or every hour of swimming or sweating. Excellent. And for people who are actually by windows and things like that or, you know, the same thing, or, uh, what do they do in terms of just all day long then throughout the year should be using this, or how would that work? Well, I would say that uh, for those of you that have uh, windows, just especially peak hours between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., avoid direct exposure if you're not protected with clothing or you don't have any sunscreen. Uh, and, uh, but in other times, it's really not that important. Uh, and another thing that convinces many of our uh, uh, young people also to use sunscreen is, uh, is that sun exposure is not only bad for certain types of skin cancer, but also it ages your skin, and it can cause these painful sunburns when you are receiving any type of uh, either uh, the conventional chemotherapies or even some of the new targeted therapies against cancer or immunotherapies. So uh, that would be the important thing to avoid between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And we have, um, thank you very much, Dr. Lacatura, this was very helpful. And we have two late-baking questions. We're just going to stay on just a few more minutes. Um, and a question for Dr. Sloven. Can immunotherapy cause 
or lead to neuropathy as a side effect? There is always the potential for that. I personally have not seen it in any of the patients that I have treated. Uh, Most of the time, if there is neuropathy, it's usually due to something that's affecting a nerve in the back or in the upper arms, but I've not seen it per se, although it is a theoretical possibility. Thank you. And one other light-breaking question, and again, this is for Dr. Sloven. It is a follow-up to a previous question, an important one, and Dr. Sloven, if you could just give some guidelines on this one. Um, So this was the uh, question about the one-year delay of autoimmune issues. Um, It was for a daughter, um, 15 months remission from HL, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and has recently been super tired, racing heart, shaky. It almost sounds, so the mother sounds like thyroid, told my daughter to follow up and get blood work with her oncologist, would you agree? So again, this is a very specific question, but again, probably sure. some, you know, for everyone to think about guidelines, what do they do? And of course, yes. if you could address it in a general so way. So it's an excellent question. Anytime there are symptoms that are very unusual, that should be brought to the doctor's attention. I don't know how old a person is, but certainly looking at the thyroid function test would be very appropriate. Younger women could also have mitral valve prolapse, which also causes palpitations. It's just a little overgrowth of a valve. And then another uh, possibility is that uh, sometimes when people are dehydrated, they could have a feeling of very, very fast heart rate. But in general, uh, it... uh, There's a multiplicity of reasons for this. People have had prior treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma who may or may not have had radiation may also develop this as a possible cardiac toxicity. So I don't take any of this lightly. My feeling is one should start very easily with blood work and then make the appropriate referral either back uh, to a cardiologist for further evaluation, maybe an echocardiogram and the like. Excellent. Thank you very much. And I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. You can't hear us applauding, but we are. We thank you. I also want to thank all of our participants, both from the phone questions and the online questions, for just really adding to this call by these excellent questions. And we do recommend, of course, that in addition to listening to this program today and, and getting tips, that we do take that you take all of your questions back to your treating healthcare team who will be responsive to you in, your, in terms of your questions. And any questions, I think if you take away from this call, is any question, bring it to your physician, of course, any change, anything that you're concerned about. Now, I did say that I would let you all know how to address, how to get your questions answered if we didn't get to them. So let me actually do that right away so that if you have any, medically, any medical questions, of course your healthcare team is your very best resource, of course, but some of you like to get information in addition from a credible source, and so we always recommend the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. It's a wonderful resource and a great place to actually um, to call in terms of any questions that you might have. In addition... Um, if you ha- and also you can contact their website at www.cancer.gov. That's a wonderful resource as well. And they have a live chat feature that you can each utilize as well. It's a kind of wonderful way to get your questions answered. In addition, of course, you can all um, actually, um, uh, if any of you also would like to get help with any of your emotional or social or practical questions, please go ahead and contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org 
And indeed, our oncology social work staff will be happy to help you with any practical or financial assistance or any help with any of your um, wanting to join a support group, get any type of counseling help, or just really talk with one of our social workers about your concerns. And most importantly, as we conclude today, we don't want anyone on this call to feel that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of our cancer care community. As, as such, we, you are, uh, all of our services are available to you as you need them. We don't have to wait until there's an emergency. You can call us at any time um, along the way that you have a question or concern um, to talk with someone. Um, we're here to, to help. And again, I want to wish you all a very, very fine day and uh, look forward to being on future programs, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.